Welcome to The New Way, the bite-sized podcast for leaders and executives like you who want to transform their organisation and inspire people to work in new ways. Forget stalled progress and disappointment from upstairs. Each episode, I reveal how to communicate your vision, drive change, and become the leader that everyone loves. No BS or fluff, just the practical info that you need. I'm Dr. Kate Byrne. Get ready for actionable insights, mini execution plans, and game-changing secrets from my 20 years in the trenches, supporting senior leaders to introduce the new way. (laughs) Let's get started. What's the employee engagement level like in your organisation? Have you ever thought about the relationship between your organisational culture, employee engagement, and how that impacts the success of your transformation programs or change initiatives? Today, my guest is Professor Carl Tritcher. Carl is Group CEO of the Brand Institute, HeadX, and the Culture Institute of Australia. He has more than 20 years' experience delivering strategic advice to Tier 1 brands, boards, and business leaders. Now, The Culture Institute of Australia is an insights, education and consulting firm that helps organisations measure, understand and shape culture for our post-COVID digital age. There, Carl and his team help prepare individuals to effectively manage and lead teams in this digital era and support organisations to build positive, productive workplaces that attract talent and drive productivity. Guys, this is an episode you do not want to miss. Does remote work break organisational culture? Do your team need to be friends with each other to improve organisational performance? Where should the responsibility of culture sit in your organisation? How is culture different from employee engagement? And what are the leaders that are getting it right now focusing on? We dive into all of this and more in today's episode. This is such a value-packed conversation. I'm going to say you might want to take some notes, so get ready for that. I'm Dr. Kate Byrne, and this is the New Way Podcast. Let's get into the show. Carl, hello. Welcome to the show. I am so thrilled you're here. Thank you for joining me today. Terrific, Kate. Lovely to be here. Yes, I'm really excited for this conversation. Let me tell you why. I think that organisational change management, transformation programs that are happening in government as well as in other places are all about introducing new ways of working. They might be, you know, digital, they might be cultural or introducing a new workspace, whatever, but they're all about introducing new ways of working. And of course, new ways of working always mean there's an opportunity for new ways of thinking about the way that we do work. And I think that's where culture comes in. So that's why I'm so excited for us to have this conversation. Certainly a hot topic, isn't it? I mean, there's not a a moment in the day that goes past that we're not either working on thinking about or talking to someone about culture and its impact on strategy and impact on engagement and generally performance. And right now with the way the world is and the hybrid working arrangements and the ways of working being so different from the past, uh, it's a really exciting time to be working in this space. Mm, Yeah, I think it's fascinating and something that all leaders need to be considering right now. Mm. So tell me, what is organisational culture now? Like you mentioned, there's been so much change, hybrid work. 
What does culture mean now? It's different to different people. It's one of those things. There's 164 stated definitions of culture. So that being the case, it makes it very difficult to, to land on, you know, a central navigation device or a, a common understanding. And in the past, you know, we've done, we've been over 20 years and there's been a lot of evolving iconic brands, I suppose, the big banks, insurance firms, telco tech. And they, of course, to evolve, whether it be a strategic development or they enter as an acquisition or variety of things can happen, there's a heavy reliance on, on culture. So they've tried to create a definition and the one that most of them go to is it's the way we do things around here. Now, prior to that, the definition was essentially that culture is a set of tacit assumptions that indicate what it's like to be part of this community. Now, there's problems with both of those definitions. So let's start with tacit assumptions, which is Ed Edgar Schein's work. It's not accessible. So for the HR community, they could somewhat understand it, but in terms of translating that into hundreds, if not thousands of people, it just didn't do the job. And very much so with the way we do things around here, around where people are working from home now. So it's not really the answer. So we generally settle on a definition, which is it's a set of expectations that an organisation has about what it means to be a citizen within that organisation. And so expectations can be shaped through the decisions that leaders make, the symbols the organisation invests in. Uh, there's a variety of things, but in every instance, employees, are their radar is on 100% of the time looking for those signals and those symbols as to what it means to survive here and then also succeed. Oh, I love that, that employees, uh, their radars are on all the time. They are, everything is data. Everything communicates. Really nice. So why is culture and organisational culture something that leaders should be thinking about and investing in? So when you get to, this is a great topic. Thank you. The great question. The, the idea in the last decade, HR directors have changed their title to be chief people and culture officers in a lot of the organisations we deal with. And that's a huge mistake. So what that indicates, it's like having the head of innovation. You know, innovation is a is a rhythm. It's a way of working. It's an influence within a business and much like culture. So to have a chief people and culture officer sends the wrong signal that culture is owned at that particular functional component or department, when in reality the board sets the culture, the CEO directs the culture, the HR department helps manage culture and leaders, to your point, shape culture in every intersection, every conversation and every interaction that they have. So for, for leaders, when you look into a diagnostic, the biggest way to influence culture is through leadership behaviour. So it's critical that leaders, in the moment, when you get into levels of acumen around culture, leaders overassume. They think they know a little bit more than they currently do or they're not interested. I think it's fluffy or it belongs to HR. So there's a lot of work to do at the moment. You know, we're working in the executive certificate capacity, helping leaders um, go through a program so they know what cultural leadership is and they understand the impact they'll have. My very next question was going to be, where does the responsibility for culture live? Where where should it be sitting in the organisation? And you've you've said the executive board and then kind of brought to life by the CEO. Is that something that you see happening or is it really still stuck in that chief people officer corporate division? A little bit of both. Uh, the leadership teams and executive and boards are now having to look at culture more because of the war on talent and the fact that their performance is being hindered by that. And if you go back in time, you know, there's been a CEO fired through every Royal Commission essentially because of cultural misconduct. So 
those sorts of signals to leadership that this is actually on your watch. You know, we were consulting to one of the big four banks through the Royal Commission and unfortunately the CEO and chair were forced to resign through that process in a matter of culture. Now, there was 50,000 people in that organisation, so it's very difficult to say they should have known or they should have had governance in place to be across everything, but there were a few things that overlooked. Um, But that was a good example of the buck stocks stops with them when it comes to culture. The HR director remained in place. Mm, That's interesting. Very insightful. So, you know, thank you for bringing up that war on talent and the link to culture there. No, I'm going to take a step back because I'm linking it also to engagement and employee engagement. A couple of months ago, I read something that you wrote that I have been thinking about ever since around, and I too have seen these types of stats about what is the, the, you know, the percentage of employee engagement across organisations in Australia. And they're typically always under 20%. Sometimes I've seen as low as like 9% or, you know, like I see them being really varied. And I read something that you wrote that basically said, what the hell, how is this acceptable? (laughs) And this is something really important for organisational change and change leaders because without engagement, you do not have change success. We must have engaged stakeholders, engaged employees in a really genuine capacity. A lot of the currency that we deal with is attention. And if we don't have people's attention and we can't funnel it in particular ways and influence it, then it's all for nothing. That engagement is so critical. Can you tell me what is the relationship between culture and engagement? Yeah, that's a really great one too, because at the moment you've got organisations that are basically billboarding themselves as culture uh, experts, but really they specialise in employee engagement. And there is a relationship. Culture drives engagement. So the experience that you have and the expectations that you have within an organisation leads to how engaged you are. And so when you get into those statistics of which you just mentioned, you know, Gallup uh, suggested that only 20% of Australians and New Zealanders were uh, engaged in 2021. So 80% weren't. And when you get into why they weren't, it wasn't money or conditions or ways of working. It was a lack of sense of belonging, a lack of recognition, a lack of respect and acceptance and a feeling that they belong there and they have a future there. So if we can take that information, which is right there for everyone, turn that around and work to that, that's the foundation of culture and it's also the the catalyst for, for employee engagement. If you feel like you belong and someone believes in you, It has a profound impact on how engaged you are, regardless of anything else. You might work in a tin roof outhouse, but if someone loves you there and tells you how good you are and believes that you have a future and you are the future and you're part of the future, you will be engaged. It's as simple as that. And unfortunately, we overcomplicate big programs roll out with which we're sometimes involved in. And when it comes down to it, that's the foundation. That's the bedrock of all of this. Cues of belonging, sense of belonging. I feel trust, psychological safety, bring my whole self to work, authenticity. And from there, I can start doing things like sharing information with you, giving you high candor feedback, which I wouldn't be able to do if we didn't have that relationship. And we know that that's central to innovation. So every company has to be an adaptive have an adaptive culture at the moment. And so if you don't have the high levels of trust and that sense of belonging, you simply can't, which speaks to the 80% of disengaged employees. That's very interesting because quite commonly something that we will see in government is management and leadership that's kind of old school. It is 
a kind of directive, uh, setting a mandate, even around things like hybrid work and what that means and number of days in the office and that type of thing. Are you seeing that approach working at the moment? So we've got two, or actually three companies in our stable. So we've got the Brand Institute of Australia, the Culture Institute and HEDEX, which is a higher education consultancy. Now, that means dealing with vice chancellors in universities and big sandstone universities. So to that question, we certainly see that, and they're under a lot of pressure at the moment to innovate. And so getting them to let go of the legacy systems and their conditioning around culture is the key. Inside the bigger organisations that we consult to in the commercial world, they are trying everything. So they are, they've tried the mandate, you know, the more, the bigger organisations that have to get people back, not working, people aren't coming. The statistics are something like $211 a week people are saving in not commuting and also in lunch or, you know, snacks or whatever it might be. What we're seeing work is if you have a sense of belonging in a community, you do accommodate your citizens' needs. You know, it's a, it's almost a full purpose culture. So what do you need? Well, you're going to be $200 out of pocket. Well, how can we help? Google engages Google Foods as their cafe supplier. So for Googlers to be as effective as possible, they have these wonderful cafes where you go and eat free and you feel sustained, you feel well looked after, well held, and you have higher engagement. Now, there's no reason that the bigger organisations can't set something up very much like that along with other sort of subsidies. That's what it's going to take for organisations to bring their people back in an engaged manner. The mandates, there's no chance that's going to work unless we go into an enormous <laughs> recession and fear takes over. What are some of the personal capability that leaders, including change leaders, can seek to develop in themselves to support building that type of culture and sense of belonging? Sure. You have to look at the greatest teams in the world to get that answer. So they can be any any sort of teams. We work with, I mean, Guy Leach, who some of the older people know as a former world champion, Ironman, does a lot of leadership work with us and talks about the swimming pools that he was part of, that he only became world champion because he was part of a community. And they had rituals and ceremonies and ways of working that spoke to their culture that spat out more world champions and more Commonwealth Games champions than any other swimming pool. And so you do the same thing with the Navy SEALs. You look at Pixar, Sydney Football Club, the Swans, uh, the All Blacks, and the leadership role within that begins in empathy. So it begins with generosity. And and Hugh Mackay wrote a the book, I think, I can't remember what it's called now. Any resources, we'll link to them in the show notes. Great, great. Which was about generosity and giving people our time. And the hectic, crazy, dopamine world that we live in has us perpetually distracted and on our own personal missions. And the older we get, the more we become the delivery expert, where we want to talk more and listen less. That needs to flip. And that's also actually happening at a younger age because of um, digital conditioning with the, with the younger generations. But teaching people to connect to lean in, to look at one another, to face one another, have conversations, listen, consider, respond. There's no greater time now for meditation, wellness, introspective you know, evaluation. How can I actually be present so that I'm here listening to this individual, their needs? How can we come to an agreement? How can I be vulnerable and develop trust between us? There's a little bit to it, I should say. So the fact that we're running courses now flat out for leaders to move through, because it's not something that's naturally in their education, it's not in their MBA program. Yeah, I'm associated with a, you know, a business school and these sorts of considerations aren't really in their, the syllabus. So it's, it's really required right now. 
Mm, that makes a lot of sense to me. So tell me more about what you see some of the leaders that you're working with, what are they getting right at the moment? You mentioned before, you know, that mandate approach. Mm. Zero chance. No chance. Of that. I would love some kind of tangible examples or tips that um, people can kind of take and reflect on about how they might apply it. Yeah. So we're seeing a real swing, and this is this is terrific. So Top Gun came out two weeks ago and reminded all the 50-year-olds in the world that we got conditioned by two films, Top Gun and Point Break, essentially. And what that taught us was <laughs> that we have to be alpha. That taught all the leaders, all the men particularly, Alpha is the go. So that's the legacy. You know, I'm I'm infected by that thinking as well. It's actually addressing some of that so that you move from having this position of having to put on a, a show that you understand and you know are in control and command the whole time, which is really not going to work because commercially we know the best organisations, the best performing organisations have the best partners and relationships. You know, the Arizona State University has 140 tech partners. You know, they haven't said, we're going to do it ourselves. We're going to bring the expertise in-house. They've gone to the best and formed these wonderful collaborative relationships. What we're seeing now is a swing from the alpha command and control style of leadership into this collaborative leadership. And it's coming out of tech, largely, because we know through agile, through uh, iterative development, that it's not a closed border. It's not a us and them situation. You're always brokering some sort of relationship for the sake of customer service, which comes through um, product development. I love that collaborative leadership, what that looks like. No matter what sector you're in, that's something that you can consider. That is absolutely applicable to the public sector who may have regulations or, you know, funding limitations or, you know, may not be able to get catering in uh, every day. But those kinds of things are definitely something that can be reflected and, and can become something very tangible in the workplace. Something that I have heard a lot of leaders say to me recently, no, they haven't said it, but they have been insinuating this idea that remote working like somehow breaks culture, that that if everyone's working remotely, culture is done and dead. Is that right? It can be right. It's certainly, it's like a high-performance car. A high-performance car means high-maintenance. And so the fact that people are working away in uh, micro cultures in their backyard, in their, their back room, it, the maintenance is it's not the same structure. You're not having the pit crew looks very different now. So you can't have your HR, functional HR that manages bits and pieces. The responsibilities now are organisation-wide and the, the hiring and firing, is, well, hiring particularly, is dramatically different. So there is something true about that in that the vibrancy of bringing people together is central to the climate and climate is a component of culture. So in terms of bringing people back, it's terrific if you have three days where everyone's back. It's dire if you have five days that have dribs and drabs and a, and a graveyard, a ghost town. You know, it's like, where is everyone there? The reason people should come back is to collaborate and, strat and, and invest in strategy. The reason they should be at home, if they can have a workplace that's quiet, they should be moving into deep concentration and task work. And even the... The physical redeployment of, we've just done a, a seven-storey tech building in Cremorne, 100% accommodating that previously. Mm, you've just said something very interesting to me, that when it is time in the office, you want to have all your team there at the same time, if that's at all possible, or as many people as possible. Something that I'm seeing across a number of clients in government at the moment is that be in the office three days. It doesn't matter which three days as long as we know and it's the standard routine. So as a standard, you don't have 
everyone in your team all together at the same time. So I think that is something really interesting for people to reflect on about what is the intent of the time in the office? What is the intent of the time working at home or, or anywhere else? What's the goal of that work there? I'd suggest that that's a flawed model. It's kind of pretend flexibility, yes. isn't it? Yes, and it won't speak to the, you know, if you're an advocate for the organisation and you're a citizen of the organisation, it means doing things that work for you, but also there's a reciprocity here. It has to work for the company. So if we're looking for that vibrancy and the meeting of minds and bringing the business back together to cultivate culture, it, people have to be there on the same days. Yeah, ooh, so good to think about. And Something that in in that conversation that comes up as well as the, if everyone's working remotely, then culture is dead, is this kind of underlying idea that we must be aiming for friendships and relationships at work, a kind of a, a, a sense of closeness with the people that we work with and that, that the insinuation is or the assumption is that that is linked to better organisational performance. Mm. Is that something that is true in terms of the, the stuff that you see? So it's not specifically true. There's actually some real problems with over-indexing on relationship. So a lot of the bigger clients that we've had experience with, not so much now, but maybe a decade ago, they were all a bit too chummy with one another in the culture. So what that does is it perpetuates a good news culture. So the good news culture can happen in two ways. One, you're too happy, too familiar, so you don't want to actually risk the relationship, or you're not familiar enough so you don't trust them to tell tell them the truth. So there's, that's how the, the bad news culture and hiding things and misconduct accelerates. So that's not necessarily the case in terms of friendships. What is important and true is that fun and social connectivity drives innovation. It's the fuel for innovation. So you wonder why Google has skateboards and M&M machines. It, importantly, it drives a sense of fun and energy that when you are in the depths of a three-hour, you know, multi-wall investigation for this iterative change that may or may not be that exciting, you do it because you like being with the people. You know, there's a sense of energy to it and you're showing up and you want to be there. That's something that isn't recognised through a lot of organisations. You know, our, our culture diagnostic panorama has been built post pandemic. You know, we've used a lot of tools over the years. We've built this specifically to hone into the influences on culture. They're going to drive performance now. So do you have curiosity and spontaneity in the organisation, which are critical for innovation? Do you have social and empathy as cousins or partners? They're going to have an influence as well as, of course, the more commercial elements of delivering results. We're coming out of an era where everyone was focused on process and efficiency and process efficiency. And I liken it when I'm trying to help organisations get their head around this conceptually to the galactic empire for those Star Wars fans versus the Rebel Alliance. Now, the Rebel Alliance wins because they actually prepare to take risks. And if you're not a Star Wars fan, I apologise. I can't really find another <laughs> a better analogy than that. Yes, that's so interesting. As you were as you were sharing those ideas around empathy, innovation, what lands for me is the values that I'm aware of, the stated values of a number of different departments and agencies, uh, and whether or not those, uh, I'm going to use the word competencies, you know, capabilities are present in those values. Because, of course, every leader I speak to wants an energetic, engaged, innovative, 
community of employees, of course, but it's interesting to think about those competencies and how, whether or not you can see them in the values that you are talking about and focusing on bringing to life in your organisation. Ooh, so you have shared so many useful tidbits that I know that people listening to this are going to keep chewing over for quite a while. How can people connect with you and keep the conversation going and learn more? Sure. So if they head to thecultureinstitute.com.au, they can become a member. There's a monthly newsletter, Motus, which means movement that goes out. We've got a weekly podcast called Shapeshifter, where we interview leaders that are changing the game and shaping culture. There's a variety of events that will be happening later in the year, CultureCon in Sydney and Melbourne, uh, the Workplace Culture Awards will be happening, et cetera, et cetera. And we look, importantly, our role is to create a better world, really. That's what we're trying to do here through leadership and improved culture. So we've released the FY uh, Australian Workplace Culture Guidelines about two weeks ago, which provides any leader looking to shape culture, a not a dashboard necessarily, but 16 guiding principles and the things that are important for them to consider just to make sure they've got a checklist. Now, that, that then goes up to the board-to-board board level. It works through everything from ESG through to harassment, through to engagement, culture diagnostic, but it's essentially a, a resource that we've developed in an op- in an attempt to help organisations do better with their culture and people. Yeah, I have uh, read through those guidelines. They make a lot of sense to me. They're appropriate for the contemporary settings. We will definitely link to that resource in the show notes for people because they are very, very worthwhile and certainly for sharing with your leadership team for consideration and even just understanding the fullness of everything that impacts culture in your organisation at the moment. I'm a member. I signed up. I'm getting the emails. I'm listening to the podcast. I think everyone else should as well. This is such important stuff um, to be thinking about if you are in any leadership role at the moment, and it's highly relevant for the public sector. Thank you so much for your time today. This has been great. I really appreciate it so much so much to think on. I'm going to be coming back to you, I'm sure, with uh, <laughs> with thoughts I'm having on stuff. Thank you, Kate. I've really enjoyed um, the opportunity. And like you say, it's a critical topic. So the fact that we get to dive into it as much or as little as we need to is, is really important. Thanks again. Yeah. Thank you. 